0: Father in heaven, and as we turn our hearts and minds to the scriptures, we do believe that this is inspired truth. This is truth breathed out by the Holy Spirit to men of old. It is written for our prophet and admonition. Father, these words in the text will humble us. It will straighten our crooked paths. It will give strength where strength is needed. It will give courage where despair is found. It will equip us For every good work, it reveals, first and foremost, your character and nature. We are so thankful, Father, that in this text we see you in action, stooping down to save and to rescue the sinner. That is the theme and story of each of our lives tonight. I'm so thankful that we do have a Savior who is Jesus Christ, the Lord, and that he has stooped and humbled himself to take upon himself flesh. To bear our sins in his own body. Suffering our payment on the cross. Being buried and on the third day rising from the dead. It is the message of the judges that no human deliverer could satisfy or provide for a broken and sinful heart. We need a savior. And we thank you for Jesus. So give direction in our thoughts and our hearts tonight. And bring application of the text to us now in the New Testament church, we pray to God, Your honor and glory forever and ever, Amen. So the text tonight is Judges three verses seven through eleven. I broke it down to four, kind of four broad points in an outline. What we find in Othniel, just to start with, Othniel is the first judge we're introduced to. And when you read it, you know what I was just struck by as I have read it and reread it, in light of all the other judges, that um, it is so scant about Othniel. We don't get, listen, we don't get much about him except some parentage. We don't know what kind of battles were fought. We don't know how glorious the victories. We don't know what kind of weapons were used. Did he use an ox go? Did he use a spear? Did he use a sword? Did he use rocks? I mean, how did he win? Uh, we don't really even know much about his enemy. So it's interesting that you could almost have blanks for the judge, and it's like God just filled in the bare details. He didn't give us any relishing, exciting details of big, fat kings with a dagger in their stomach. We don't get, um, we don't get a woman dropping... Did you read further in Judges? A woman dropping a millstone? I mean, wow, those are crazy, wild things. We, we don't get that here. We get... Um, just a very plain story, but why? Uh, could it be that as God introduces to us the judges, he wants us to see himself as the Savior? We want to see his power, his grace in action. And sometimes you get a really flashy character, and you begin to look at the character, and you, and you miss the Lord behind it. And I I think God did this deliberately. I bet he really wanted to maybe throw in a bunch of details that would get us curious and make us think that what a cool story, but he doesn't. He leaves it very bare because he wants everybody to see he is the Savior. He's the one who delivers and rescues. So let's take a quick look at the text. Let me read it. Verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishthaim. So the land had rest for 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kanaz died. Well, there you go. That's the record. But this is the pattern that we're going to see happen over and over. And so the same pattern will will prevail in each of the period during the Judges. The people fall into sin, forsaking the Lord. They reach such bottom, listen, they reach such lowness in their state of life that they do nothing but cry out for pain. And God hears their pain, and he's moved in his heart with compassion. He raises up a deliverer. He empowers the deliverer, and they have victory over the enemy. And then land is at rest. And the people have a period of quietness, and then they go off into rebellion again, and it starts again and again, and they just can't seem to get out of that rebellious stage. Well, remember now the reason why they're in the rebellious stage. Verse 7. So the children of Israel, it says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's the evil. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. So I call this Israel's infidelity and God's anger. So Israel is unfaithful, and God is angry. It just makes sense. Why, why? is? What did Israel do? It says this, They forgot the Lord their God. Listen, you guys, it doesn't mean they forgot anything about him. They didn't forget that he created all things. They didn't forget the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They didn't forget the call of Abraham. They didn't forget Noah's flood. They didn't forget the exodus out of Egypt. They knew these things. It's just that they gave them no regard. They didn't take them into account. Literally, they forgot God, is literally they had no regard for him. Do you remember the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation? There was, what a great, powerful church. A leading city in Asia Minor who has a founding of the Apostle Paul. You've got John the Apostle, one of their pastors. You've got Polycarp, one of their... I mean, you've got some great men of the faith as their leader. And what does, what does John write in about the 90s? He says, Ephesus, you have deliberately left your first love. You're doing a lot of things right. You're preaching the word. You don't like false teachers. You're doing this. You're doing that. But the one thing, the most important thing is you, have, you don't love the Lord anymore. You're doing it all out of some ritual. You're doing it because you have to. Listen, don't ever get that way. Don't ever have this become duty. Don't, don't have coming to church, reading your Bible, and praying become a duty where you feel like, oh, I have to do this or God will be mad at me. No, you don't have to do this. We get to do this. We get together. We get to sing together. We get to laugh and cry together. We get to encourage each other and then give of our possessions to help one another. It's, it's a privilege to be able to do these things. It's not a duty. It's a devotion to the Lord. And I fear, I fear that maybe I would begin to drift from loving the Lord and just operate out of the fact as, you know, if you do things enough, it just becomes habitual. We don't want that. I, I want our children to grow up with a real, authentic love for the Lord. That they're not just going to live out a Christian life by rote practice, because that's the way they were raised, but they are going to, listen, read the scriptures and actually break down and cry, because the scriptures have moved them so much. When was the last time you were reading the Bible and it was just, it gripped your heart and you were like, wow, I can't believe this. You know, how many times do we read about the cross and the deliverance, and you hear it a thousand times, it begins to have no effect. But you, we can never, we can never go where where Israel did. They forgot the Lord. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Jeremiah two. I didn't read the text this morning, but I want you to see this. Jeremiah chapter two. Listen to how Jeremiah said it to the people. It's a repeated message, and we need to hear it over and over. Jeremiah two. Please look with me at Jeremiah two, verse five. Jeremiah two. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me? What a statement. God says, What, what do people find I have done wrong that they would abandon me and go after the gods of this world? Right? What, what has God done wrong that would make us not love him and instead love Hollywood, love gross movies, love Sex and violence on TV, social media, money, fame. What has God done that would make us love those things more than him? The answer is he's done nothing wrong. He hasn't left. Weird ones that have moved. Here's what it says. Verse 5, they have followed idols and have become idolaters. Neither did they say. They never once said this, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? That's an awesome thing. Who led us through the wilderness. Gave us manna, water out of a rock for 38 years. Their, their feet never needed a new pair of sandals. Their leather never wore out for 38 years. I, I, I buy a pair of, t- of dress shoes and within 18 months I need a new pair. They fall apart. And I'm not even in the rocky desert. They never asked, well, the Lord did all of this for us. Our response should be, We should love him and be like a bride to him that's clean and pure and holy. Listen, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt, God took care of them the whole way. God did nothing but good, 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 and the nation Israel never responded. As a matter of fact, in Hosea's day, you know what they said? We would prefer a raisin cake of the false gods of the pagans rather than worshiping the one true God. They would love eating a raisin cake more than they love God, Hosea 3. Could it ever be said that a New Testament Christian who knows the death and resurrection of Christ would love a Hollywood movie or a sporting activity more than God? Who would be more concerned about making money than God? Could it be said that any New Testament church would maybe say God is not enough and the Bible is not enough. We better add some world things to this or we're going to lose people, right? I mean, it's so easy to go down that trail. It is so easy to go down that, that path. Here's what else he says. Look at Jeremiah 2 again. Verse 7, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness, but when you entered, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. Do you know why? Listen, do you want to know why they, 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 did, they defiled the land? In Deuteronomy 6, Moses warned them. Moses said, You are going to go into the promised land. And when you go in the promised land, you are going to live in houses you never built. You are going to eat vineyard fruit, the grapes of vineyards you never planted, you're going to get water out of a well you never dug, and you are going to forget me, you're going to forget how good I am, and you are going to turn to the gods of that country. Because if you get something for nothing, you take... Listen, I remember... Dad, Remember, you remember I, I, I bought this little Chevy Chevette? Tan Chevy Chevette. And uh, it was, everybody called it a little girl car, but it was mine, and I didn't mind. And um, I remember one time, I, Dad, do you remember this? It was one summer. I think I had washed the car three times in one day. And Dad said, see, this is what you do when you buy your own car. When you get your own car with your own money, you really take care of it. You know, I think if my dad had given me that car, my mom and dad had given me that car, and I had, I had done nothing for it, I would have just thought, who cares, it's his. He'll just give me another one if I wreck this one, if, if I don't ever clean it or whatever. If I never change the oil. You get the idea? So here, you guys, is our salvation free or what? Is there anything you have to work for to earn your salvation? Nothing. You can't do it. You get it for free. And anything we get for free, we tend to neglect and think nothing of. If God said you have to do these 10 things to get to heaven, man, you would try your whole life to do those 10 things. But you can't. It's a free gift. And things that are free, we tend to neglect and not take care of. Israel did. Listen to this. Verse 8. Jeremiah 2.8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? The spiritual leaders never said, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law, they did not know me. How many pastors are preaching the word today that don't have a relationship with God by faith? It says this, The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. That's the leadership. But listen, uh, well, verse 9. Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges for pass uh, beyond the coast of Cyprus and sea. Send to Qatar and listen and consider diligently and see if there has ever been such a thing. Verse 11, here it is. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? Is that What do you think? Has it, like I said this morning, has any nation ever abandoned their gods, which are false gods to start with? And the answer is no. They cling to their false gods. But the one nation who has the one true God abandoned her and forgot her. And I believe the church is in danger of the same thing. I believe there is a gigantic church out there that has no thought of God or his ways, but they are looking at the bottom line. Money, people, filling the pews, whatever. I'm not saying every church, but I'm just saying, look at what's going on in this world. you agree? We have to be so aware of this. Well, you can finish reading Jeremiah 2, and it's so enlightening. Let's go back to Judges, though. We don't have time. Judges, it says this, they forgot the Lord, verse 7, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The Baals and Asherahs were the images of stone and wood. They would rather carve an image out of wood, cut a tree down, make an image out of wood, cover it with some silver and gold and bow down to it and say, this is my God, although it cannot move and it cannot speak, it cannot see and it cannot hear, And they would abandon and forsake the one God who sees, hears, and moves on our behalf. It just doesn't make any sense. But I am so prone to do that too. I am prone to do that in my flesh as well. So that's Israel's infidelity. And then we see God's wrath. Look at verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. It has to be. He wants to be loved exclusively. He will not share his glory with others. So, what does he do? He's, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Kusha, Kushan Rishathaim eight years. So, eight years of pain. Now, we'll talk about the oppressor in just a minute. Eight years is a long time to go when you are being harassed. Your children are dying, your crops are being taken, your animals are being stolen, houses are being burned down. That's okay for one year, but that, but that happens every single year. Uh, By the eighth year, you're crying out in pain. So that's my second point. Verse 9 is Israel's cry, and God saves. Look at verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. You guys, Israel's cry. this, This phrase, okay, this phrase as it's been researched, and a lot of research has been done into it, it's not the idea that they cried out, with a change of heart it's, like, it's not that they cried out to the cha- with a change of heart saying we have sinned against you we will abandon our, I- our idols and we will place our trust and faith totally in you we will not trust the idols we will trust you it is not that cry this is the word cry that is used over and over and over for simple pain they just cried out in pain God we're sick and tired of the torment on our families we want things to eat we want children in our house we don't want this life anymore. And they cried out to him with that kind of pain. So it's not the pain of, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just call me, you know, remember the prodigal son? That was a true cry of repentance. Father, against you, and you only have I sinned. There's no cry like that. All right, so I'm going to challenge you. You want out of the rut of sin? You want to get out of the slavery, and the bondage of sin. You cannot turn your back on the Lord and turn it to idols. You have to face the Lord and you have to confess your sins. You have to go before him and and just expose yourself. And you have to say, Lord, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Remember Psalm 51? David murdered his best friend, Uriah the Hittite. He slept with his wife, Bathsheba, had a child, and offended his Uh, best counselor, Ahithophel, who is Bathsheba's grandfather. He has made so many sins and mistakes. And for one year, Psalm 32 says that his bones shriveled up and he groaned and he cried all night. He couldn't do anything. He was an ineffective king for one year uh, as he committed adultery, uh, all sorts of things. Finally, when Nathan the prophet confronts him, you know what he does in Psalm 51? He says, against you, Father, and you only have I sinned. And at that moment, the weight lifted. It's genuine repentance. We need real repentance, real revival. Not just, Lord, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that I keep making a mistake, but I don't know what else I can do about it. But to say, Lord, I have sinned against you and against all of heaven. I deserve eternal wrath and condemnation, but you have given me nothing but grace. Change my heart, change my desires, change my my life so that I might live for you. And that's what's missing in here. But you know what? That's Israel's cry. Look at what God does. He delivers them. He saves them in spite of the fact that their hearts are not right. They don't want to change. They want to live in their sin and still have God on their side. But you don't do that. You guys, we cannot live in our sin and have idols in our heart and expect God's help and blessing. We cannot. It doesn't work that way. We cannot have our sinful life and cherish the things that we want to cherish and then say, God, I will let you in, but you only get this part. You've got to be happy with that. God says, I'm not. I will not do that. He will not make himself at home in a life that has idols. He won't. And so what does he do? He delivers them anyways. And he uses Othniel. That's all we know, his name, the son of Canaz. We don't even know who that is, but we know it's Caleb's younger brother. Wow, that's all we know from the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 10. We're going to learn a little bit about Israel's oppressor. Who did God raise up to go against Israel? And then we want to see God's power. So here's Israel's oppressor. Verse 10. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord, the emphasis on the Lord, delivered Kushan Risttheim, king of Mesopotamia, all right, I'm done calling him that name. It's too hard in English. Uh, let me tell you what it means. Well, let me—that's the—that's his original name. Let me tell you what it means. Kushan Rishathaim means double wickedness, two wickednesses. This guy was double evil. And you know where he came from? Mesopotamia, which in the English means two rivers. I think it's a joke. I think the Holy Spirit is is having fun here. He's saying God raised up an enemy. To, to humble Israel, to make Israel real low so they would depend on him. And he raised up double wickedness from double rivers. Now, where is Mesopotamia? Double rivers? The Tigris and the Euphrates. You guys, Iraq is a long way from Israel by foot. When God wants to punish Israel, at this point... Early on, he doesn't use a Canaanite. He doesn't use a Hittite, a Jebusite, a Gigavite, a Hizosite, a whatever. He picks somebody from far away, raises them up so that they would humble Israel, so Israel would feel the pain, and the pain would make them turn to God in faith. That was the idea. Double wickedness from the double rivers. Um, God does this all the time. God does all sorts of things to humble us so that we feel some pain. You know, when we sin, we should feel some pain. And that pain is good. It's healthy. Because it turns us to the Lord. We cry out and say, Lord, I'm tired of this. I can't bear this weight any longer. I want relief. I need freedom from this. And we cry. And he wants that. That's why there's a weight that comes with our sin. That's why although sin has a pleasure... There's very much a disdain for it in a believer, because God wants us to call out to him. Do you guys know the story in Jeremiah 27? We're, we're running out of time, but do you know the story in Jeremiah 27? All right, let me tell you. so you can read it on your own this week. Jeremiah 27. you know like how presidents, our presidents, go off to big summits and conferences? They go to China or they go to Europe and they have a big G8 or big G20 conference and they get all the big leaders of the country. They get together and they they wine and dine and they discuss things and they come up with all sorts of policies and things like that, that ruin us and destroy us and take our money. You guys know what I'm talking about. This is what happens in Jeremiah 27. In Jeremiah 27, there's a big council, there's a big summit of all the world leaders. So all the world leaders are meeting in Jerusalem and they're standing up in the palace... Or the temple, but they're close by. Okay, so you got a picture. The world's leading men are there, as well as King Zedekiah of Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has already come down and taken captives and begun his destruction of, of the promised land. So, the group of leaders—they are not there to discuss. They are not there to discuss economics. Or anything, They are there to discuss one thing. Should we rebel against Nebuchadnezzar as a team? Should we all go against Nebuchadnezzar and try to take him out? Or do we just let him run over us? Now the prophets, all the false prophets, every single one said, overthrow him. You can do it. God, God is on your side. Overthrow him. Jeremiah, here's what he does. He goes home and he makes a big oxen yoke. He takes a big yoke he puts it on his neck and he walks into the politicians to their assembly with a big yoke on his neck. And I bet King Zedekiah is going, oh no, this is one of our goofy people in, this, in the country. And he goes to all the leaders of the country and he says, you have been lied to by false prophets. Do not believe them. God, the God of heaven says this, if you submit to Nebuchadnezzar Let him come across and take your land. If you submit to him, God will keep you in your land, and you will live. If you go against Nebuchadnezzar, he will crush you. God will take your life and kick you out of your land. And then a a false prophet, Hananiah, stands up and said, Jeremiah is not telling the truth. God is not going to do that. You go against Nebuchadnezzar, you guys can win. Do it right now, that type of thing. And then God says this, I'm going to have Nebuchadnezzar crush every one of you until his time comes, and then I'm going to take his land and crush him with somebody else. I mean that's just the way God does it. So Israel needed crushing, and God raised up the king of Iraq to come over and crush Israel. Wow. Um, sometimes God has to do that to us, doesn't he? Sometimes he has to bring us really, really low, or we never change. So let's take advantage of those low times and cry out to the Lord and watch him deliver us. Here's what happens in verse 10. It says the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. He judged Israel. He went to war and the Lord delivered Cushan, king of Mesopotamia into his hand. We know nothing about Othniel except two things, you guys. We don't know if he was a great warrior. We don't know if he was a statesman. We don't know if he was a farmer. We have no clue. There's two things. God raised him up, so God called him, and God empowered him. That was all he needed to win. You guys, you know what, God, what we need as a church? We need God's calling to be clear, and then we need his power to live it out. He has called us. He has called us to salvation. We're saved. He has equipped us and given us gifts, but we've got to do something with it. He has raised us up in this assembly to do something. Not just to sit, but to do something. And by doing something, we strengthen the whole church. And through the power of the Spirit, not by our might or our strength, but by His power, says the Lord, He is going to save people and disciple them and raise them up to be great men and women of the faith. But He's, gonna, He's using us. He's got to use us. This is His working material. Is that pretty exciting? So there's Othniel's here that God has called, and God will empower, and great things will happen. I mean, I would never have believed, what, last year, the middle of last year, a men's Bible study taken off on a Monday night like that. I, I thought, yeah, if we, we'll probably have two or three at the most, and then we're just going to plug it out cause, and be diligent. But wow, we're having just incredible times together. And the ladies, same thing, great things are happening. It's because people have stepped up and said, I trust the Lord. He, we want him to use us, and we're empowered. Wednesday nights, Conqueror's Club, fantastic. The number of salvation decisions, people, visitors coming here to the church. Look at the crowd tonight. It's incredible. On, a, on one of the coldest nights of the year. It's amazing. This is all by God's power and God, by God's strength. So God sends an oppressor, but he also sends his power to deliver. And then finally, the last verse and the last point. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Here is Israel's opportunity. Can I say something? God does not always use severity to change our lives. He can use that if he has to. Sometimes he gives us rest. And what happens often when we rest? We get complacent, like Israel does. And after 40 years, when they're not fighting and struggling for life... They're living in prosperity for 40 years. By the end of the 40 years, they are more corrupt than when they began. And it's possible that, listen, now that the church is doing so well, it's easy to to let our guard off, isn't it? And say, oh, everything's running smooth. We don't need to pray. I don't need to always be there or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of things we can say. But once we grow complacent, then what happens? We spiral down and God has to do something to stir us up and we cry out to him and then he rescues us and we go through these patterns as well. So, like right now, at a time of rest and prosperity, we need to trust the Lord and call upon him even more. We should be more fervent in prayer, more diligent in the word of God, more willing to separate ourselves from the world and be less like the world than more like it. We want, we want to make a distinction between our lives and the world. Israel blended themselves with the world, mingled with the Gentiles, and were doing atrocious things, expecting God's blessing at the same time. All right. Well, as we close, here I I can think of this application. In Romans 2, verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance. What's going to lead to a changed heart is really to see how good he is for us. Anytime that I choose to sin, I'm really saying, God, you're not good enough. I I don't have this which I need in my life that will bring me joy and peace. So even though you never gave this to me, I'm going to get it on my own, regardless of what you think. Instead of saying, God, you're good, and your goodness should lead me to a changed heart, I can live with your goodness and be satisfied. That's what we really need. We need to be satisfied in the goodness of God. And then secondly, our church, if our church abandons Jesus and forms all sorts of worldly alliances, we can expect to make ourselves an enemy of God. Even though we're his children, we can expect his discipline, right? Which father would not discipline a rebellious son? A good father, Hebrews 12 says, will discipline a rebellious son. All right, So we don't want to go that direction. But do you know this? Remember in Ephesians 6, who do we wrestle against? Principalities and powers of darkness. Forces of evil and wickedness. When we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, dependent on God through prayer, even the forces of wickedness fall before us. I think that's pretty Awesome. I think that's great. So we've got choices to make all the time. I'm thankful for where you are at, where we as a church are at spiritually, where we are at with the gospel, with evangelism, with prayer. And I just want to encourage you, we need to go further and farther with it. And let's, let's pick up the pattern of the judges as we look at each one. Uh, next Sunday morning, we'll look at Ehud and the king of Moab. It's total unexpected deliverance. Absolutely Amazing. And we're going to see similar things. But we're going to be reminded, keep our distance from the world's pagan ways. We're going to live for Jesus. We're going to trust him and look for his power. And we're going to, we're going to encourage one another and strengthen one another. So let's do that. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Judges and even the first judge, Othniel, which we just get so little detail about because you want to shine. You want, to, you want us to see it was Israel's unfaithfulness that brought about your anger. They needed to be humbled so they would trust you and not gods of silver and gold. And then you showed the power by raising up a man. You empowered him. You delivered the enemy into his hands. You get all the glory. And Father, in the church age, it is the same way. This church is nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. It is nothing without our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We give him full allegiance. We want to worship and set our church according to the ways of Scripture, not according to the appealing of the world. We want to live indiv- individual lives and lives as a family that is separate from the world. We don't want to think and act and look like the world. We want to think and act like children of the Father, the children of the Heavenly Father. And so, Father, this week I pray that we would have testimonies of grace and holiness that we would be humble and that we would cry out to you on a daily basis, praying for one another and praying for the last. Thank you, Father, for our church. Thank you for what you're doing and even for these examples now in the book of Judges, one after another of Israel's worldliness, but your grace time and time again. You are a God who loves to save. Thank you for saving us now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here tonight.